The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. This Sunday represents an interesting junction in the life of our church for several reasons. One of those reasons has to do with our plans and two, the other two, with where we are in the calendar. So as many of you would be aware, we have just completed a major undertaking. We preached all the way through the Gospel of Mark. I felt that this past week, just in terms of the exhaustion you can feel at the end of a journey, I was just like, man, I'm wiped out. i barely recovering. Uh, I was talking with Sean uh, a few days ago, and he was sharing that journeying through Mark kind of gave him this sense of direction. You know, you, you, you wake up and you kind of remember, okay, this is where we are in our process. And now that we're done, it's kind of like, okay, what are we, what, what, where are we? What are we going to do next? Um, and we've been thinking that through and, and praying that through a bit. Where do we go from here? Uh, we haven't made a final decision about that, but uh, when we have, we're going to begin to envision you for that. But what we have right in front of us on the calendar is Christmas, of course. And that rightly demands our attention uh, because it gives us the opportunity to focus on and to celebrate the incarnation of Christ. Then, as I mentioned already, right at the beginning of January, we celebrate our third anniversary as a local church. And that's barely believable for me. Uh, this morning, as uh, Patrick and I were setting up, and we were remembering our first service being there on the terrace, and you're kind of watching the sun saying, all right, are we going to have enough shade by the time we start at 8.30? You know, will the sun rise enough? And that doesn't feel like almost three years ago. But, you know, we're grateful. We are just, just looking at what God has done, and we're giving thanks. With our anniversary fast approaching, I've begun to reflect on where we are in our journey what sort of community are we becoming? What biblical teaching should be shaping that? And with Christmas almost upon us, how can we begin to reflect meaningfully on Jesus coming in the flesh? And how can we move forward without simply leaving Mark behind us after investing so much in that journey? So it's, it's a question of how can we springboard from Mark towards Christmas and our third anniversary? One great way to accomplish all of that is to give our, to give our attention to Philippians chapter 2. So would you please turn or scroll to that text? We're going to be focused on verses 1 through 11. As we studied Mark, it dawned on me that in many ways, Philippians is a theological reflection of the narrative of Mark. I find that to be the case throughout this short letter, but particularly here in chapter 2 of Philippians, there's an instantly recognizable aroma of the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve. If Mark's story has given us fragrant coffee beans, then Paul percolates those into an espresso of potent Christology and practical instructions. And right in the middle of this passage, Paul has captured a distinct flavor of Christ's incarnation one that he wants us to both admire and imitate. So please lean in then as we read from Philippians 2, 1 to 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy 
by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Uh, as we prayed earlier, Lord, we need you to open our eyes in wonder as we gaze at Jesus in this passage and as we seek to respond uh, to his commands here. Lord, it, 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 uh, only seeing you clearly changes us. Only coming in contact with you through your word transforms us. So we pray, Lord, that you'd open our eyes to see you and open our hearts to respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm not a car guy at all. So I'm not really fascinated with makes and models. I remember high school and guys would have car magazines and all of these things. And I didn't even know what rims were. You know, it was embarrassing. <laughs> um, you know, but also, if you have a problem with your car, if I see you broken down beside the road, I can come and empathize. <laughs> but I can't, if I look in that engine, I'm just seeing engine. I'm not... <laughs> You know, there's nothing going on here for me. It's not like Sheldon. Sheldon is the pastor among us who can help you with your car. But you see, worse than all of this is that I'm not attentive to maintaining my car either. So, of course, I'll put gas in it and I'll try to make sure the tires are inflated, but that's about as far as it goes. So, I'm deeply appreciative of inventions like the maintenance-free battery, uh, which I'm told is not entirely maintenance-free, but that hasn't stopped me from living like it is. You see, there are things that, continue to, that can continue to run well without a conscious effort on our part to keep them in good order. But a church is not one of them. Here in Philippians, Paul is calling attention to one aspect of the work uh, that the Philippian church must put in if they're to maintain the unity they've been given in Christ. If these believers are to continue to be united, they must embrace the collective pursuit of humility. And Paul presents Jesus as the ultimate exemplar of the humility these believers are commanded to imitate. What's true for that church is true for us, Grace Family Church. Our unity as a church depends upon conscious and collective pursuit of Christ-like humility. The unity that is at the heart of what Jesus is doing in us is not maintenance-free. Without our attention, without our obedience in pursuing the humility that Jesus demonstrated for us, we'll be weakened by external and internal challenges that will come and already are coming our way. So we must keep our eyes on the one who saved us and brought us together and worship and imitate him. 
Our unity as a church depends upon conscious and collective pursuit of Christ-like humility. So I want to help you to do a couple of things as we make our way through this passage. I want you to hear, first of all, Paul's impassioned plea for unity. And then I want you to see Christ's spectacular example of humility and its outcome. So we need to hear first and then we need to see as we walk through this passage. So let's first give our attention to hearing Paul's impassioned plea for unity. We're going to be focused on verses 1 through 4. As we look at the first four verses of this chapter, uh, we're not going to start from the very beginning. Instead, I want to focus first on what Paul is calling these believers to. Then we'll return to the start to consider how he calls them to it. So look at verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now stick a pin where Paul says complete my joy. We'll come back to that in a bit. He expresses what he's calling them to in four phrases. Being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. His list begins and ends with the idea of having the same mind. In other words, having one, uh, one mind or purpose. So unity of thought is what he's focused on here. But in the other phrases, he adds two more dimensions. Having the same love. And being in one accord, or quite literally joined in soul. So the unity Paul is calling for is not just being on the same page in terms of how we think or sharing a common goal. It's a full-orbed unity of mind and heart and soul. It's being bound together, not just by common principles, but by mutual love and commitment to Jesus and to each other. I, I'm, loving, I'm loving the feedback from the kids. Come on, you guys. Come on. So here's a question. How do you hear this call to unity? I mean, there are a number of ways that it can hit us. You can hear in it the good news that the gospel continually invites us out of isolation and into family. Living through this pandemic, of course, has amplified our sense of isolation. I hope that during this time you have been sustained by your private communion uh, with Jesus. But I think we've all realized that we suffer when we don't have connection with each other. The basis of that connection and what makes it sustainable is not just that we click, it's not just that you meet people and hit it off, but that we are in Christ. That's what we're called to invite others who are not yet believers into. And if you are here or if you are listening and you're not a believer, that's what we're inviting you into in Jesus. I'm aware though that this kind of call to unity can sound ominous in some ways. Having the same mind can be mistaken for the kind of groupthink where questions are seen as a threat or, or you wonder whether you're allowed to disagree with anything. We're rightly concerned about cults here in Jamaica, especially because of recent events over the last few months. But particularly if you're a few years younger than I am, there's a generational bent that you need to be aware of. You may find that almost instinctively you distrust institutions. And you may harbor the fear that conforming to a pattern of thought will lead to your losing yourself. As a result, you may be reluctant to throw yourself into relationships in the body of Christ, to kind of dive into the pool, and instead you keep to the periphery. You kind of sit on the edge and dangle your feet in the water. You know? 
But if those kinds of thoughts are in the back of your mind as you try to follow Jesus, I think what we've seen in the Gospel of Mark can help you. Jesus most definitely does not invite us into a democracy. He teaches with authority and calls us to discipleship that demands our ultimate allegiance and our unwavering allegiance. Yet, you see how he was with the disciples. He welcomed their questions. He patiently journeyed with them. And we can know that he is not the kind of shepherd who exploits his sheep because he lays his life down for us. And, and think again about Mark. The moment, at the moment Jesus lays his life down for these, these guys in particular, for the twelve, where were they? Gone. They weren't even anywhere nearby. You know? So his commitment to us far exceeds our commitment to him. That's really what we want to mirror here at GFC. We want to be both patient and clear in our teaching and to ground it in Jesus' authority and not our own ideas. And we want to welcome your questions and to position ourselves as your pastors to serve you. But what sets the agenda for our unity? What's it built on and what's it meant to express? Look, at, look back at verse 27 in chapter 1. That's actually where Paul begins this series of instructions that we're examining. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that when I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the instruction that is the distinct backbeat all the way through to chapter 2, verse 18. And as you can see here, the unity of thought is linked to working side by side for the faith of the gospel. So Peter O'Brien rightly observes that Paul is calling these believers to be gospel-oriented as they relate to and care for one another. And Mark 10, 43 and 44 reminds us what that looks like. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So the unity that Jesus calls us into, the unity that Paul is calling for, doesn't come through a kind of forced uniformity, but through embracing a mutual commitment to humility and an orientation towards others. Look again now at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2. Commenting on these verses, Moises Silva points out, the true obstacle to unity is not the presence of legitimate differences of opinion, but self-centeredness. So rejecting self-centeredness and cultivating a servant heart is, is precisely what Paul is concerned about in these verses, in verses 3 and 4. He gives two negative commands matched by two positive commands, calling the Philippian church away from selfish ambition and conceit and a focus on themselves and towards humility in their thinking and a focus on others. Think about those ideas. Selfish ambition, conceit, a focus on oneself. You see, the problem we face immediately as we reckon with what Paul calls us to reject is that sin makes us fundamentally self-centered. We see this in our infant children. Um, that's partially because they're not old enough yet to know how to clothe it and conceal it. So, you know, that's why when you have a second child, particularly if the first is quite young, the addition of an other, no matter how welcoming your first child is, inevitably brings conflict. All of a sudden, the toy that was mine has to be shared with somebody else. And that's inconceivable. That's mine, and I want it now. 
Suddenly, in addition to being protector, provider, and playmate, you have a new role that comes with a new uniform. You will become a referee. Yeah. But children have no monopoly on selfishness. We don't actually mature out of selfishness. Wasn't selfishness obvious, on, obviously on display in the Gospel of Mark? The negative commands here in verses 3 and 4 in Philippians could almost be a commentary on the rivalry and self-interest we saw among Jesus' disciples. You know, the arguing about who is the greatest. You know, James and John trying to get Jesus one side to say, Hey boss, you, know, you can sort out something for me. When you come into your glory, we want the most important positions. And then we saw that the other disciples, you know, they were upset with them because they got there first. You know? Selfish ambition, conceit, and a focus on oneself. Particularly because it presents us with an audience to impress, social media tempts us in this regard, doesn't it? If you're an active social media user, perhaps later, take some time to scroll back through your posts and stories from the last week. Why did you make those particular posts? How often did you do it for the likes? To show that you are smart or funny or relevant or resourceful or attractive? How often were you motivated by looking out for the interests of others? How often were you seeking to honor someone else rather than seeking to be honored? Now, I must confess that I barely use social media. Sam has a full handle for me. Insta-less Joe, is it? So I actually was a very early adopter of Facebook before it was popular here in Jamaica. But I saw over time as the way I was tempted to use my words to impress others, to craft that phrase perfectly to get as many likes as possible, or to best others in argument. So I backed way off, and the truth is life got a lot fuller. But avoiding social media doesn't make you any less self-centered. Uh, a couple of Sundays ago, we're setting up before church, and Sean was asking, how come Akeem didn't have a folder you know, for his music? And I explained that more often than not, Akeem doesn't need chord sheets to play the songs. He learns them, and quickly I'd add, and plays them from memory. And Sean was impressed. And my immediate impulse was to add, oh, oh, I can do that too. Now, no, thankfully, I recognized the temptation that was eating away inside of me, and I didn't say it and swallowed my pride. But you see, here's the thing. What I had in front of me was an opportunity to count others more significant than myself. Uh, but instead of celebrating the gifts that Akeem has, gifts which serve me and serve all of us, uh, instead of expressing gratitude for him and honoring him, I wanted to step into the spotlight too because Sean was impressed. And, you know, that, that craving of attention for my abilities... Yeah, which, which I didn't give myself in the first place, and which honestly pale in comparison to Akeem was just rising to the surface. You see, Paul gives us these negative commands because we need to hear them and heed them until we are delivered from the very presence of sin. You know, we're going to continue to need these reminders. But you see, it's one thing to swallow our pride. It's another thing to pursue humility in the ways we're called to hear. So what could that look like? In the first place, we need to acknowledge that we have to consciously pursue the humility that, that Paul is calling for here. So it means putting thought and effort and planning and strategy into caring for the interests of others. We're used to putting thought and effort and planning and strategy into caring for our own interests. It means taking a posture towards our brothers and sisters where we're attentive to them and we're looking out for them. One simple starting point is in how we have conversations. If we're not thoughtful, most conversations we have can be about us. 
They can become opportunities for us to talk about ourselves, our likes and dislikes, our opinions, situations we're going through, and so on and so forth. And even if you're not so inclined to talk about yourself, that doesn't make you automatically inclined towards compassionate and attentive listening. What if instead we counted others more significant than ourselves by listening and asking questions that are aimed at getting to know people and to understand them? What if we became the sort of people who, after speaking with us, people felt like they had been heard and understood, even if just for a short conversation? In these verses then, Paul is calling us to the priority on unity maintained through a conscious pursuit of humility. Now I want you to notice how Paul calls us to this. Look back at verse 1 in your text and the first part of verse 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy, complete my joy. What Paul begins with is a passionate and personal plea. Moises Silva explains, verse 1 is not intended to function as a set of four rational theological arguments, but rather impassioned pleading. So what he lists here are felt benefits of being united with Jesus and with God's people. Encouragement, comfort, participation, which really means fellowship, affection, and sympathy. And that if is before each of those in the original text. He's appealing to them to pursue unity, persuaded by the blessings they have received in Christ, even if they have to reach a bit back in their memory to remember those. You see, when Paul wrote this letter, things had gotten tougher for these believers. It's possible that they're not aware or not experiencing the, the, those same blessings to the same extent that they once were. His language, if any, also embraces the fact that as individual Christians, we may experience these blessings to varying degrees. So one person, and you, you know, you've met these Christians, they just gush on about how encouraged and loved they felt when they came to faith in Jesus, and even how encouraged and loved they feel now. Another might acknowledge some experience of such blessings, but also that they have had some very painful experiences in church. In saying, if any, Paul is appealing to all of us who have experienced the blessings of salvation to any extent. And he's saying, let that motivate you to pursue unity of mind, heart, and soul. So here's the question. Do you find yourself more marked by negative experiences you've had as a Christian or in church than you are by the blessings you've received in Christ? Do you find yourself more fearful of imagined betrayal than you are expectant of the blessing of acceptance and understanding that you've already experienced to some degree? Paul is actually calling us to focus our emotional memory on how God has been gracious to us in Christ and to let that fuel our obedience. Paul's appeal is passionate, but it's also personal. He says, make my joy complete. Now, Paul is not hijacking the moment and being selfish and making their obedience all about him. He's appealing to the personal relationship that this church has with him. He planted this church. It's like he was attending to the spiritual birth of many of these believers. They've been his close partners in the work of the gospel. These, these, this was a church that contributed to his needs when other churches were not doing so. And they've been praying for him and identifying with him in his imprisonment for the gospel. 
No, and Paul, as Paul writes in chapter 1, he's hoping to be released because he's longing to see these guys because of his deep love for them. It's also that relationship that he's saying his joy will be complete if they pursue unity. But think about that for a moment. Paul is in prison. If you were in prison, what would make you truly happy? Wouldn't it be being released? But for Paul, his concern, his focus is on the spiritual progress of these saints. Their sanctification, their obedience, their pursuit of unity, that's what will complete his joy. Even if he remains in prison, if he hears that this church is doing well, his heart will be full. You know, honestly, it's hard to figure out what to make of Paul sometimes. But I must confess, this time as I read this text, I realized that I understand his personal appeal in a new way. No, because I've been pastoring you all. I'm at the point where it doesn't matter how well I'm doing personally. You kind of, how wonderful my own communion with God is. My joy is now attached to your progress in the faith and to our unity. So, so when you struggle to believe the gospel, when you reject the grace of Jesus, when relationships fracture and there isn't reconciliation, when people withdraw from fellowship, I carry those deficits in my heart and in my prayers. I'm coming to see that that is a part of my calling. So this plea for unity, this appeal for a conscious and collective pursuit of humility is personal for me too. So we've heard Paul's impassioned plea for unity. But Paul isn't finished persuading and teaching us yet. Moises Silva observes, If unity can come about only from an attitude of humility, then surely Paul must reinforce the critical importance of humility in the heart of believers. And what better way to reinforce this thought than by reminding the Philippians of the attitude and conduct of him to whom they are united in faith. So it's going to serve us now to see Christ's spectacular example of humility and this outcome. We'll be in verses 5 to 11. So look in your Bible again at verse 5. This is a difficult verse to translate precisely. The ESV that we primarily rely on says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So the ESV translators are leaning into the idea that the humility we need to embrace is a gift of the gospel as we are empowered by Jesus. A number of other good translations go in a different direction. The CSB or the Christian Standard Bible, for example, says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, leaning into Jesus as the example of humility we are to imitate. Now, normally when there's this kind of disagreement, my approach is to read a bunch of commentators and see who I find most persuasive. But this time I only had access to a limited number. One of them, Moises Silva, whom you've heard a lot from this morning because I found him really helpful, uh, offers a paraphrase with yet another emphasis. Adopt then this frame of mind in your community, which indeed is proper for those who are in Christ Jesus. So he's leaning into the appropriateness of humility for people who are in union with Christ. All right. But here's our saving grace. All of those options are biblically faithful. So we don't need to figure out precisely which one Paul had in mind to respond in order to respond to his exhortation. In fact, all of those reasons for the pursuit of humility are in or immediately around this text. 
Right after this passage in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul will call for obedience grounded in knowing that we are empowered by God. We already looked at chapter 1, verse 27, which calls us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, echoing Silva's idea of the appropriateness of the pursuit of humility. And Silva himself points out that the notion of Jesus as an ethical example is implicit in Philippians 2.5 by the very nature of the subject matter. So we don't need to trip over differing ideas about this verse. In this case, we can have it all. We can pursue humility knowing that it is a gift of God's grace. And that it is appropriate for us as followers of Christ to think like he did. And that he is our example as we seek to do so. And in this case, we can, it's not only that we can have it all, we actually need it all. We need to hear that the pursuit of humility comes through God's power given to us in Christ, because how else could we imitate Jesus? If we were to try to take this command and run with it on our own steam, it would defeat and discourage us before long. We'd be overwhelmed by our remaining pride and self-centeredness and put off when we fail dismally or when we suffer in our efforts. So yes, Jesus is being held up here as our example, but he is never less than our Savior. The example of Christ's humility that Paul gives us here cannot shape us until it saves us. And the effect of the work of Jesus described here not only rescues us from the punishment of God that was rightfully ours, but it also brings us into Christ and into relationship with each other. So believing the good news in this passage means trusting that Jesus has given you a heart transplant. That he's put within you a heart of humility that's alien to your sinful desires. And therefore one that will sometimes be rejected by your sinful instincts. A heart that you can scarcely recognize except for its resemblance to Jesus. To believe the good news will look like keeping your eyes on Jesus and beginning to trust and obey his instructions, even if they feel to you to be counterintuitive, unwise, or even unsafe. So one of the ways I exercise, and admittedly I haven't been doing enough of that in the last few weeks, uh, is jump rope workouts. For me, I like them because they're short enough that, you know, on those days when I'm get, it's getting to afternoon, I'm tired, I'm like, come on, you can do 20 minutes, come on, get going. But they're also physically demanding enough that I feel like I get value out of the time invested. But, all right, how do I want to put this? Uh, I'm not exactly the most coordinated person in the world. It's, it's like all my rhythm is in my hands and I can really only do one thing at a time. So learning jump rope has taken some time and some effort and I still have a lot to learn. The app I use links to some instructional videos with these super fit looking guys who make everything look easy but they're actually good at teaching. One of the things that they say is that when you're jumping rope, do not look down at your feet. You need to pick a point out in front of you, keep your head level, and focus there. Now, for some skills, they even recommend that you close your eyes so that you can concentrate on feeling the rotation of the rope uh, instead of having just all of this sensory you know, data that you're processing. Now, I don't know if other instructors would agree, but I've found that counsel to be really helpful. The point is, it doesn't help you to focus on your feet while you're trying to jump. In a similar way, it doesn't help you to focus on yourself, on your efforts, on your struggles while trying to learn humility. What you need to do is to look and to keep looking at Jesus. 
So it shouldn't be surprising that Paul, as he calls us to Christ-like humility, points us to Christ himself without breaking step. It's one sentence. It just keeps going. As we prepare to look at verses 6 to 8, I need to help you to feel where we are right now. Over the centuries, believers have put a lot of thought into the design of church buildings. When churches had lots of resources, their architectural choices were consciously made to evoke a sense of awe and reverence when you walked into the building. People will report that they walk into this kind of building and all of a sudden they don't feel like they should be speaking loudly. You, know, you might have felt that if you've walked into a church with high ceilings and with stained glass windows that catch the light and pull your eyes upwards, in other words, heavenwards. Now, if you could read ancient Greek, you'd recognize in these verses that we have stepped onto hallowed ground. From verse 6 through verse 11, the writing style is elevated from the surrounding text. It reads like a poem or a hymn. And it represents arguably the highest Christology, that is, teaching about Jesus, that we have in the New Testament. It dives down to the horrific depths of Jesus' humiliation and then soars to the heady heights of his heavenly exaltation. In verses 6 and 7, Paul poetically describes what we celebrate at Christmas, the incarnation of the eternal Son of God. Jesus, who is intrinsically equal to the Father, did not hold on to that equality in order to use it for his own advantage. So Paul is pointing out that Jesus refused to act selfishly, but instead humbled himself. What we see then in the narratives of the incarnation that are often read at this time of year is the story of Jesus humbling himself. We see how the Word of God became flesh, how through the supernatural work of the Spirit, a child was conceived in the womb of a poor Jewish girl who had never had sex. We see the Word by whom the whole universe was created coming as a helpless newborn in very humble circumstances. He was God, yet he was dependent on his mother for food and for care. The one who created language had to learn to speak. What we celebrate at Christmas is the extraordinary humility of Jesus. And surely that should shape how we celebrate. It certainly means that we should resist the impulse to make Christmas all about our desires being satisfied and rejoice in rather than resent opportunities to serve others. The verb translated emptied himself here has led some people to think that in the incarnation, Jesus shed elements of his divinity. The thinking goes that God never grows weary, but Jesus did. Therefore, Jesus could not have been all-powerful. Or God knows all things, and Jesus had to learn many things as he grew, and admitted to not knowing things, so therefore he could not have been all-knowing. As difficult a thing as it is to wrap our minds around the incarnation, this passage, properly understood, doesn't support that kind of thinking. You see, Paul explains what he means when he says Jesus emptied himself. We can see it here in our English text, but it's much more vividly seen in the original language. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. Jesus emptied himself by adding humanity to his divinity. This was subtraction by addition. Now, kids, don't try this in math. Now, I already explained that I'm not a car guy. 
But think of a spectacular new car, you know, in a brand that you really like. Think of the finish and the rims, and I know what rims are now, uh, the upholstery, the dash. Now think of taking that car and caking it, plastering it completely with thick mud. So you cover the whole thing. So you can't see the finish, and so you obscure the view of the interior. So the brilliance of the finish and the style of the interior would be lost entirely. That's subtraction by addition. In a similar way, the one who was spectacular beyond description, whose radiance was unbearably bright, emptied himself by becoming human. And the result was that when Jesus was born and throughout most of his earthly life, he appeared, well, ordinary. And worse than that, he took the lowest place, the place of a slave. Now, when you think about it, Jesus could have become human and, had been, and, and could have been born royalty. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, when you look at chapter 2 and you see the visit of, of the Magi uh, who came looking for him after his birth, that's where they thought to look. They headed to Jerusalem looking for him among the royalty. But as one commentator helpfully points out, the one who could have rightfully claimed the highest position in human history and justly received supreme honors deliberately sought the lowest position and submitted himself to extreme humiliation. So, Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And as Paul points out in verse 8, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We walked with Jesus in this journey as we ended our time in the Gospel of Mark. And we saw that death on a cross was something that the Romans would only inflict on those they considered to be non-persons. It was humiliating and dehumanizing. As we think about Jesus' incarnation, which ultimately was about his death and humiliation on, uh, at the cross, here's something I want you to see. Being a disciple is not just about appreciating what Jesus did for you. It's not just about worshipful admiration of him. You see, you can appreciate and admire Jesus without any inclination to imitate him. In the same way, you can appreciate and admire Shelley and Fraser Price without any inclination to get out on the track there and work hard. But in this case, admiration without imitation is sub-Christian. We're called to think and behave in the way he did. There's another idea that's sub-Christian that we need to be aware of. A church is not built on reciprocity. What do I mean by that? In reciprocal relationships... We give with the understanding that others will give to us in return. I have some good friends who I've known for many years, but right now our relationship feels that, that kind of reciprocal relationship. And it's not a bad thing in this case, but it means that every few months somebody takes everybody else out for lunch or for breakfast. And you kind of take turns paying, you know? So, <laughs> in reciprocal relationships, if I forgive you for being inconsiderate, I expect forgiveness in return. If you inconvenience me, I expect that you should acknowledge that and be reasonably tolerant of me in my moments of weakness. In reciprocal relationships, I'm willing to condescend, but I'm not prepared to absorb a net loss or an ongoing loss. You see, reciprocal relationships are like a seesaw. Even if I must lower myself, it's not very far. And it won't be long before you must lower yourself and therefore lift me up. Or I'm going to stop playing this game. 
But look at Jesus' example here. Do you see any reciprocity? No. He goes down and down and down until there's no further to go. And he does so for us. That's what humility looks like. So 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7 says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. For many years I didn't see the connection between that first part and that second part. But think about it. If you truly humble yourself, it's going to lead to all kinds of anxieties. But there's no need for that with reciprocity. With reciprocity, my sense of importance is not diminished any more than yours is. With humility, I'm called to lay aside my sense of importance and consider you to be more important than me. This explains why the expectation of reciprocity makes marriage such a miserable experience. You see, marriage wasn't designed to be a reciprocal relationship but rather one where both spouses embrace ongoing humility without keeping score. And Jesus shows us that to humble ourselves is not to lose importance. Sharon, are you cheering at me? <laughs> I think that hit, that, that hit home, huh? That... <laughs> yeah, so Jesus shows us that to humble ourselves is not actually to, to lose importance. You see, his humility did not diminish his deity. And for us, humility only becomes possible when we are secure in our identity in Christ. Now, very briefly, we need to see the outcome of Jesus' humility. Look at verses 9 to 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These verses describe God's response to Jesus' obedience and humility. They describe a gracious and therefore free response, yet at the same time it says, therefore... In Mark, Jesus taught us that if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. No one has ever and no one will ever exemplify this more than Jesus did. And God, who opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, exalted Jesus in his resurrection and seated him at, the right at his right hand and gave him a name that is above every other name. So what name is that? To see that, we need to look at Isaiah 45. Verse 23, by myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. The one speaking in that verse is the covenant Lord. It's Yahweh, God himself. In Philippians, Paul says that every knee in all creation will bow to Jesus. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is Yahweh, essentially, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' journey of humility led through humiliation, but ended in exaltation to the highest place, seated beside God his Father, where he will be rightfully worshipped as Lord over everything. Paul ends with Jesus' exaltation because we, too, can have a similar expectation in ways that are different but similar to Jesus. We will be exalted if we humble ourselves. 
That's the expectation we see Jesus point us towards in the Gospel of Mark. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. If we humble ourselves, our journey like his will end in honor and exaltation. Today in Philippians 2, 1 to 11, we've heard echoes of Mark's gospel and seen images of the incarnation, even as this passage has pointed us towards what must become a priority for us as we continue our journey of growth as a local church. Our unity as a church depends upon conscious and collective pursuit of Christ-like humility. It must be conscious. Nobody can take the journey of humility on autopilot. It must be collective. We all must embrace this humility if we are to please God and to adorn the gospel together. Jesus has been exalted to the highest place. A part of what it looks like to bow our knees before him now is to respond to the blessings of salvation by prioritizing the unity we have in Christ and pursuing the humility we see in Christ. This will cost us and it will stretch us. But what we will gain along the way and without a doubt in the end will far surpass all that we will give up. So let's lift our eyes and look to Jesus. He's our example of humility and the one who empowers us to walk in a manner that's worthy of bearing his great name. Let's pray. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.